Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. We will begin with Putin telling Trump to cut aid to Ukraine, then Trump telling Marjorie Taylor Greene to cut the aid, then Marjorie Taylor Greene telling Speaker McCarthy to cut Ukraine aid out of the bill the Democrats helped pass to prevent a government shutdown. Joining us to discuss why cutting aid to Ukraine is the top priority for Trump and a handful of Republicans in Congress, so much so that they would shut down the government, is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Then we'll examine the urgency to replace Dianne Feinstein in the United States Senate and how California's Governor Newsom has had to backtrack and speak with Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation. He is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, The Fabulous Story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. We will discuss his latest article at The Nation, Dianne Feinstein's Empty Seat. Then finally, we will speak with Astra Taylor, a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She is the director of What is Democracy and the author of Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, Democracy May Not Exist, But We Will Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winner, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She is co-founder of The Debt Collective, and the latest book just out is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the government will be funded because McCarthy actually pulled a fast one, I think, in many ways on on the Democrats uh, in the sense that he basically gave them a choice between shutting down the government or funding Ukraine. And clearly, the responsible thing to do was to fund the government. And of course, the the bill passed 335 to 1 with 209 Democrats voting and 126 Republicans voting for it. So the Democrats got the bill passed. It went to the Senate and the Senate didn't have much time to make any changes, plus the, fa- the fact that Rand Paul has threatened to slow down any Senate bill that would include funds for Ukraine. So this is the way I see it, Scott, Because I, and I'm st- astounded that the mainstream press have been intimidated into looking into Trump's ties to Putin. 
this whole thing is a, is a victory for Putin. Putin gives Trump his orders, cut funds to Ukraine. Trump, in turn, gives Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Freedom Caucus their marching orders, cut funds for Ukraine. Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Freedom Caucus, in turn, tell Speaker McCarthy, cut funding for Ukraine, otherwise you're out of here. Now, they may challenge him again for leadership because Matt Gates hates his guts, but still, this is unbelievable that this is happening. So how did the United States Congress end up with the Putin caucus? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question here, I think. Um, but I think you have to, first of all, I think you have to give uh, Kevin McCarthy a bit of credit so it turns out he can actually count um, and put together a majority. And uh, you know, up until the middle of the day yesterday, it seemed that he really couldn't do that. But I think you're right that if you um, if you look at the things that were being demanded by this caucus of far-right Republicans, Matt, Matt Getzes and Lauren Boebert's, um and their counterparts in, this, in the Senate, where they're considerably fewer in number, that it really boils down to just one thing that they absolutely had to have, and that was blocking the funding for Ukraine. That was the most essential thing. Uh, and you've got to ask yourself, why? Why that? Um, and that is, of course what uh, Vladimir Putin has wanted all along. Um, and I think uh, if you look at uh, the Kremlin's path to victory right now, how they see them, how, how they see a Russian victory in Ukraine, they see the Russian victory in Ukraine running through Washington and running through the Republican Party. They can turn the Republican Party against the war. The Republicans can take control of uh, the Congress and of the White House and shut down uh, Western assistance, certainly U.S. assistance to Ukraine. And it's really only that way that I think the Russian strategists now see that they have a path to winning this conflict. Um, deeply distressing uh, for Ukraine and for the American and Western friends of Ukraine. Well, the GOP is no longer Ronald Reagan's uh, Republican Party. It's clearly Donald Trump's Republican Party. And it then goes back to the murky relationship between Putin and Trump. And for reasons that are just astounding, the Mueller report got sidetracked and marginalized by Bill Barr. For I don't understand now that if Bill Barr's finally woken up to who Trump really is. And the Senate Intelligence Committee, which report, which was totally bipartisan, made it real clear that the Russians did help Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton in 2016. And then uh, Barr, of course, sick that Durham onto the, on the, you know, in, to investigate the investigators. And that muddied the waters, but he never delivered anything, including its criticism of the Steele dossier and uh, trying to, you know, nail Danchenko. So there's been this amazing effort on the part of Trump and his allies to try and muddy the waters about Putin's ties to Trump and how much Putin helped Trump in 2016. So have they got away with it? Have the press just given up on this story and they just don't want to go there because it's old news? Why don't people continue to investigate the obvious connections between Putin and Trump? I, I think if we go back to you know all the, the scholarship that was uh, generated right at the end of World War II, about uh, totalitarian technique and the rise of totalitarian movements uh, and the role that's played 
by the big lie um, in this process. You know, all the scholars who wrote about this, and I'd say, you know, Hannah Arendt, most important of them all, um, uh, talk about uh, exactly the technique that Trump is using here, which is he just relentlessly repeats the same lies. And when they're debunked um, or disproven, it doesn't matter. He ignores that. He just keeps repeating the same claims over and over again. And over time, those who adhere to him politically accept those lies. And certainly that is what happened in Germany, particularly also Italy, also Romania and Hungary um, in this period during the wars. Um, and, uh, you know, th that raises a question, I think, about the efficacy of professional journalism uh, and reporting. And it's really its inability to grapple with this technique over time. I mean, certainly uh, there were professional journalists that were very good journalists at work in Germany, Italy, Hungary, and so forth um, between the wars, um, and they really were not effective uh, at combating this. And uh, the U.S. media, I think, has been more effective than they were generally, uh, but hasn't um, hasn't subdued the big lie. That's for certain. And and you know, at the at the, the the key lie, of course, we have the lie about the election, but we also have the lies about. Uh, the role of Russia and Trump's relationship with Russia and other foreign powers, because I think it's extremely important we keep an eye on um, Trump's dealings with the Saudis, uh, particularly today when there is a, a very strong alignment that has um, arisen between Moscow and Riyadh um, on many geopolitical issues, particularly including uh, energy. So it's a, it's a group of powers. Uh, sure, but, but Putin, Putin is certainly the one uh, who is most universally viewed as an adversary by the U.S. Well, Putin and MBS are very close. Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi leader, who actually admires Putin because he, he he's a, much better at killing his enemies than even that MDS is. And they've just recently jacked the price of oil up because they worked together on OPEC+. You better believe that Sometime in the fall of next year, just before the election, Mohammed bin Salman and his buddy Putin are going to jack up the price of oil for sure to help Trump. Absolutely. They've already started that process. I mean, there are um, there are moves now in place to control um, the production of certain petroleum products, diesel being one, and, and their export, uh, which are having an impact. They're having an impact right now across the board. Uh, on oil and gas prices. Um, and this is going to accelerate as we approach the November elections. Well, again, is there anybody in the press that's going to follow up on this obvious story that emerged from yesterday's votes in the House and Senate? And that is, why does this small group of Republicans in the House, 21 or so, Freedom Caucus, and what a handful of senators uh, why is their top priority to cut funds from Ukraine above all else, above all else? And they're ready, they're ready to shut down the entire government to get their way, and they got their way. So why? Why is this so important to them? I think that's a very legitimate question. I, I think it is, absolutely. And I think you look at certain individuals like J.D. Vance. Um, you know, J.D. Vance says, you know, no uh, prior... 
um, indication of any, you know, friendship or alignment with Russia or the Russians. But, you know, when he became politically involved and was put forward really with the sponsorship principally of Peter Thiel, um, he aligned himself quickly uh, and thoroughly with Russia. And he has, I mean, I, I, I read through his Twitter feed these days, and I see on uh, in a period of 48 hours, maybe 20 or 30 tweets about Ukraine and stopping the funding of Ukraine. It's totally obsessive. Um, very, very interesting. And I think he's one of, you know, a dozen figures in the U.S. Congress now who um, belong to this group. I might call them the Putin caucus um, who are obsessed with this. I mean, you know, certainly um, uh, Rand Paul is another one. By the way, Rand Paul, who is who is a huge supporter of Putin's, Rand Paul visited Putin carrying secret letters from Trump. So we never we've never quite figured out how Putin and Trump com- communicate and coordinate, particularly in 2015 and 2016 and before the elections. But the fact of the matter is that you know when he did meet with Putin a couple of times, he got rid of the interpreters and confiscated the notes. So nobody knows what they discussed in their in the meetings that they've had. But nobody knows what was in those letters that Rand Paul took to Moscow with him to meet with Putin. I mean, it certainly looks like they're traitors. I think, you know, also when Jared Kushner was in a meeting with the Russian ambassador in Washington, uh, very early on in the administration, he specifically made inquiries about establishing a secret special line of communication between the Kremlin running through the embassy, um, which was picked up by U.S. intelligence because he was not accompanied by um, by staffers when he did this. When Jared Kushner had his meetings with uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh, he insisted that there be no representatives of the embassy president uh, present. He did not want the embassy's supplied interpreter to accompany him, instead uh, allowing uh, Solon's, um, uh, the crown prince's uh, staff to provide an interpreter and so on. So all these highly irregular and unusual moves point to communications that are ongoing that are not in the interests of the United States. Well, you know, <laughs> Trump is now suing Christopher Steele, the uh, former MI6 spy in charge of the Russia desk at MI6, British Foreign Intelligence, who wrote the famous Steele dossier, except he didn't really write it. He outsourced it largely, uh, took the money and ran, and it was it was funded by Democrats through Fusion GPS, which was a, a company, by the way, that was also had contracts with Russians and Russian uh, oligarchs and government. So it was always pretty shady from the beginning, even though the, the claims were incredibly salacious. And still to this day, still thinks a lot of it is uh, as accurate. Some of it's been disproven, but not all of it. But the real point about this this Steele dossier, if, to my mind, Scott, is, as you recall, in uh, 2016, before the elections, Barack Obama, then president, went to the the leaders of the House and Senate with McConnell, Ryan, Pelosi, and Schumer and said, look, the Russians are interfering with our elections and they're trying to help elect Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. And the two Republicans wouldn't go along, particularly McConnell. Uh, 
So for some reason or other, Obama backed down and didn't go public with the information that he had. The information that he had did not come from the Steele dossier. The information he had came from the fact that the CIA had a spy in the Kremlin, a guy called Oleg Shmelenkov, who, when Trump got elected, he said, you've got to get me out of here because Trump's going to drop a dime on me and tell Putin about me and I'm dead. So they exfiltrated this guy and his family from Montenegro, put him up in a safe house in Virginia, and then people inside the Trump administration, uh, most likely Ezra Cohen-Watnick and uh, Cash Patel, working with Devin Nunez on the, Sen- the House Intelligence Committee, outed the existence of this, of this guy in the safe house to CNN, and then they had to move him, and in moving him, and he's still in witness protection, he could never testify to the uh, Mueller inquiry. Well, he has the most knowledge. He was a chief aide to the deputy foreign minister in and out of Putin's office. So he had the goods on how Putin was uh, helping Trump. So, you know, they've done a hell of a job on shutting this story down. And for the life of me, I don't understand why. I, I think your point is really excellent. And I think if we go back and we look at the Steele dossier, I mean, this was raw intelligence. Uh, that means it was not the product of um, overarching analysis by uh, intelligence experts. It was just pure raw input um, from a variety of different single sources. Uh, and uh, most of the attention that the media uh, uh, focused on here was on a series of salacious stories, um, uh, 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 sexual encounters and things of this sort, um, which were really not the gravamen of the report, that they were more in the nature of distraction. And if you go back and you look at the core of the report, it seems to me pretty much all the major conclusions um, that Steele offered um, in connection with this, with the raw reporting, turned out to be correct. So that the, and these were the conclusions that, in fact, um, the intelligence community uh, had conveyed already to Obama, and that he briefed um, the um, the intel leaders in the House and Senate on as well as you just uh, discussed. And these were the fact that there was an effort to influence the elections. There was an effort. Uh, to discredit and attack Hillary Clinton. I think even this week, we saw uh, the Kremlin attacking Hillary. It's really a sort of personal and deep uh, animosity there. Um, and there there was a clear connection between um, the Russian intelligence services and um, Trump, or the, certainly at least the people around Trump. Uh, that was found by, um, by Robert Mueller with his investigation uh, as well. So all these things are, uh, I think, really quite clear-cut, quite proven, um, and they are the essence of uh, Steele's findings. And you know, now we have this question of this uh, litigation, which uh, Trump is launching in London, uh, in which he is uh, seeking um, you know, to have the documents expunged and things of this sort. There are going to be hearings when it coming up in uh, just a couple of weeks, as I understand it. And this is strikes me as a rather odd move, um, odd particularly because, um, of course, there are a whole series of lawsuits that were brought against uh, Christopher Steele, both in the United States and in the English courts, uh, over 
um, his dossier, and these lawsuits really didn't go anywhere. Um, you know, we had brought by Russians, by the way. That, that's correct, brought by Russians, and and I think we had judges uh, observing in the course of it these actions seem to have been brought in order to get information on who Christopher Steele's sources were, and in the current context, that wasn't an appropriate thing to do. Um, but also, the the High Court concluded. Uh, and dismissing uh, the Major Data Protection Act claim that there could be no libel claim or libel damages because there was no publication by Christopher Steele of these things. They were leaked and they were published by BuzzFeed, but there was no showing that he's responsible for that. Um, and he was quite clear at the time that he was very upset uh, that it came out. So in light of that past history, that's sort of law of the case that I don't think Trump can successfully overturn um, and his lawyer is not so far saying that he intends to do that. So, you know, what is the purpose of this? I mean, I think it's to show that he's continuing to contest these claims. That's that's about it. So he will mm-hmm. contest them forever and ever. Well, just in closing, though, just to go back to the cutting the funds to Ukraine and what that means, they're in the midst of a counteroffensive trying to break through these sophisticated uh, Russian defenses. Uh, Russians had plenty of time to prepare because we keep holding back weapons which they ask for and then, you know, we say you can't have them and then months later we finally say, oh, yeah, you can have you can have the missiles, you can have the tanks and you can have the F-16s, but all this too late. The record so far has not been good. It doesn't indicate that the U.S. and even NATO, is, maybe NATO is, but not the U.S., is 100% uh, behind trying to defeat Russia and... I guess they've been Sullivan and the other and the White House people are probably worried that Putin's going to use a tactical nuke, which is an absurd threat. But the long and the short of it is that this money being cut off probably will mean that the Ukrainians won't succeed because they they're running out of ammunition. And this is a total gift to Putin because Putin is already going to ba- turn Russia into a garrison state, or almost like North Korea with total crackdown, complete control, and even if they have to have come to some kind of compromise with like a DMZ like the North and South Korea, he's not going to give up because time's on his side. Time is not on Ukraine's side. So this is a critical moment that they're cutting off funds to Ukraine. And if the Ukrainians were able to drive the Russians out of Crimea and, and the Donbass, it would probably bring down Putin and probably bring down this terrible regime in Russia. But if that's not going to happen, this regime in Russia is not going to go away. It's just going to get much, much worse, much more militant and much more determined because Putin is playing the long game and he is just ruthless. And I cannot believe that a handful of 21 Republicans in the House and a handful of right-wing Republicans in the Senate are working for Putin, along with Trump, who gives them orders, and in turn, Trump gets these orders from Putin. It's just amazing. Talk about the tail wagging the dog. The guy in the Kremlin is running this country, and what what does it say about America? It, I mean, I think it shows he has a pretty sophisticated understanding of how the American political system operates and what the vulnerabilities of the American political system are, and he exploits them. Um, and the fact that you can have uh, – when we have a Congress right now where there are 
super majorities in both houses in support of assistance for Ukraine, yet um, uh, a small group, uh, you know, less than two dozen uh, in the House are able to maneuver things to block support for Ukraine. I mean, this is the American political system and the way the American political system operates. And the Kremlin, I think, fully understands this. And uh, they have been exploiting it all along and doing a very um, quite accomplished job of it. So this is, you know, I think influence operations are a very strong point for Putin. Military operations, as we see going, what's going on in Ukraine, not so much. Right. And he's micromanaging the war, apparently, not even listening to his generals. I thank you for joining us, uh, Scott. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor to Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We're going to take a B-Station break. We're back examining the urgency to replace Dianne Feinstein in the U.S. Senate and how, Governor, and how California's Governor Newsom has had to backtrack. From Russia with love I fly to you Much wiser since my goodbye to you Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Sasha Rebransky, who writes regularly for The Nation and the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, the fabulous story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. And he has an article at The Nation, Diane Feinstein's Empty Seat. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sasha Abramsky. Hey, it's good to be on again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sasha. And of course, Diane Feinstein actually voted on Thursday morning and then sort of went home, wasn't feeling well, and died on, on Thursday night. And obviously, with such a slim majority in, in the Senate, the Senate Democrats need to fill that seat as quickly as possible the Republicans could really screw things up if they tried to put somebody on the Senate Judiciary Committee to be able to nominate a bunch of judges to make up for Trump and uh, the Federalists stacking the bench with unqualified right-wing judges and justices uh, now dominate the Supreme Court. So there's this procedural things that they can do, just one, uh, in fact, one a Republican senator can screw things up, and then they have to do a vote of 60, uh, which they won't get. Thus, they will slow things down. So obviously, some serious political implications here for the Democrats, uh, particularly in the Senate. How quickly do you think they're going to fill this seat? How quickly is Governor Newsom going to put out a name? I suspect very quickly. I mean, this this did not come as a surprise. Uh, Diane Feinstein's been very ill for several years. Um, most recently, she had a very bad bout of shingles, took several months to recover. And when she did come back to the Senate, was clearly both physically and also cognitively impaired. And there has been this 
awareness among Democrats that there was a likelihood that California would have to fill a Senate seat before the 2024 election. So Gavin Newsom, the governor, has had time to put together shortlists. Now, the complicating factor is um, twofold. Gavin Newsom made a promise in 2021 that if he had to appoint a new senator, he would appoint an African-American female to be the senator. But in the interim, when Feinstein announced that she wasn't going to run for re-election in 2024, three Congress people, Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, all threw their hat into the ring. Now, Barbara Lee is an African-American woman. So the easiest thing would be for Newsom to say, look, I can fulfill my promise by appointing Barbara Lee. But if he does that, he's putting his fingers on the scale and trying to tip a general election and a primary election next year, which he's also said he won't do. So it looks like what's more likely is he's going to appoint a caretaker and he'll probably fulfill his promise for it to be an African-American female. But it will be somebody who's going to be a caretaker senator who agrees to step down next year so that the three people who are already in the um, contest to replace Feinstein can play out in the primary season. But in answer to your question, this will have to happen quickly because the Democrats can't afford to leave a seat empty for long in an evenly divided Senate. And the likely person, I guess, is the Secretary of State of State of California, Shirley Weber, right? The others yeah, on the list are... Very high-profile African-American female political leaders in California. So there is Shirley Weber, who's the Secretary of State. But then there are also the mayors of San Francisco and Los Angeles, and there's the LA County Board of Supervisors um, member, Holly Mitchell. So there are a number of extremely well-qualified people to choose from within that pool, but most of them have said they're not interested in being a caretaker senator. So it does reduce the numbers. Um, I don't have any inside information on this. I know some media yesterday was reporting that Shirley Weber was the one most likely to be appointed. Um, it's certainly a very plausible, um, very plausible Senate appointment if that if that happens. Well, Sasha, you're in Sacramento, the California's capital. What what's Newsom up to then? You've said earlier that he's had plenty of time to anticipate and prepare for this. Has he indicated anything that might indicate where he's where he's heading? No, he's not. He's actually been quite quiet on this issue for the last couple of days. So, you know, there are a few a few things in play. Number one, there is the personal issue, which is that Diane Feinstein was a friend of his. And so there is the, you know, very genuine issue that a friend of his has just died. And it's a little bit unseemly to sort of get involved immediately afterwards in the food fight as to who's going to follow in her place. So I think that is one thing. It's just sort of dignified to step back for a few days on this one. But the other thing is Feinstein's death is actually politically very awkward for Gavin Newsom. He's clearly somebody who's interested in running for the presidency one day um, if Biden stepped aside and it opens up in 2024. He'd clearly throw his hat in the ring in 2024. If that doesn't happen, he's going to in 2028. He's got all kinds of different constituencies that he has to keep in his coalition. And he has to move forward on this without alienating one or more groups. So if I were in Newsom's shoes, I would be treading very cautiously here. I'd be doing a lot of behind the scenes negotiations. I'd be doing a lot of talking to different constituencies. But what I wouldn't do, and what he hasn't done, is start sort of shooting off at the hip and, you know, really sort of just putting names out there randomly, that serves nobody. So I think he's quite smart here to be holding the cards close to his chest at the moment. Yeah, and I think your point that it's a little unseemly. Chuck Schumer was on the Senate floor on Friday in tears. She's somebody that's 
highly regarded here in the state of California. That, that's right. Breaking, breaking so many barriers and her greatest achievement, I think, was a assault weapons ban. And look what happened when that sunsetted. You know, you've got mass shootings every day in this country, for God's sake. You no, know. Diane Feinstein had terrific political instincts. Um, I mean, I, dis- I disagreed with her on a lot of her policy stances, um, and a lot of California Democrats disagreed with her on a lot of policy stances, but nobody doubted she was a heavyweight politician. She broke through the glass ceiling. She um, was an extraordinary figure in San Francisco politics from the 1970s on in, and she was the longest ever serving female senator in the U.S. Senate. Uh, she was an absolutely towering political figure, and, you know, I've no doubt that Chuck Schumer's tears were genuine. She was somebody who had an awful lot of friends in the political process in this country. And, you know, whoever takes her place is going to have very, very big shoes to fill. Right. And, of course, she took on the CIA, which no politicians <laughs> on Capitol Hill, <laughs> they're scared to death of the CIA. And she took them on in a big fight. And uh, they, a, they threw a, everything at her, but she she prevailed. So she did back down on that. Yeah. So just in closing, then the three contenders that are running to replace her, Adam Schiff, he's got about forty million in in the bank. And then uh, Katie Porter, I think she's got something like ten million in the bank. And Barbara Lee, I think, has maybe a million and a half. I'm not entirely sure about these figures, but they're roughly accurate. And it's all about money, of course, politics, as you know, Sasha. It looks like Schiff's got the edge, right? Schiff at the moment is polling narrowly ahead of um, Katie Porter. It, it really is a sort of race there between the two of them. Barbara Lee's a distant third in the polling. Um, and I think, you know, partly that's because of the fact that generational changes don't happen very often in politics. This This country is in many ways, a gerontocracy. It's got people in their 80s and 90s who are basically dominating the highest level of American politics. And so when a Senate seat opens up, there really is pressure for a generational change. And Barbara Lee, she's a very good politician. She's got a tremendously progressive track record, but she's also in her late 70s. And so the idea that you'd have this once in a generation political change and trade in the seat that was occupied by a 90-year-old for a new senator who will be 77 or 78 when she gets elected, and then if she ran for re-election, would be in her mid-80s. She'd be 84 years old when she had a first stand for re-election. That's a hard sell. And so I think it's very, very unlikely that the California electorate will go for Barbara Lee. But whether or not it's Adam Schiff or whether or not it's Katie Porter, they're both prolific fundraisers. They've both got a tremendous record in the um, Congress. And they both have very dedicated followers. Adam Schiff because of his role in the impeachment inquiry. Katie Porter because she's built up this sort of fan following because she's sort of really championed a lot of issues dear to progressives. And she also won a very competitive congressional seat in Southern California. Um, So, you know, who wins out of that? I don't know. But I think it's going to be a really interesting political fight over the next several months. Well, Sasha Obransky, I thank you very much for joining us here today. No, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And again, I'm speaking with Sasha Abramsky, who writes regularly for The Nation and is the author of several books, including Inside Obama's Brain, Breadline USA, American Furies, The American Way of Poverty, and most recently, Little Wonder, The Fabulous Story of Lottie Dodd, the world's first female sports superstar. And his latest article of The Nation is Diane Feinstein's Empty Seat. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with Astra Taylor about her new book just out, The Age of Insecurity. 
coming together as things fall apart. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Astra Taylor, a documentary filmmaker, writer and political organiser. She's the director of What is Democracy and the author of Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. And the American Book Award winner, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She's the co-founder of The Debt Collective, and her latest book just out is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Welcome to Background Briefing, Astra Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Astra, and... Just a few days ago, the Republican contenders had a, a debate of sorts. It was more like a, you know, just a sort of wild <laughs> argument. Um, quite embarrassing, frankly. Um, and of course, the main person, Donald, shoot them in the legs. Trump was not there. But it struck me that the, you know, this adulation of former President Reagan obviously was the reason why they chose that venue, even though today's in today's Republican Party, Reagan would be ostracized as a rhino. But I'm bringing it up because one of the least understood legacies of Ronald Reagan was that prior to Reagan, people's wages were going up in concert with inflation, etc. And the American economy was a savings-based economy. But Reagan changed all of that by making debts freely available where the banks got money from the Fed at 2% and loaned it back to people at 18.5%. And this has sort of created an indentured society and uh, it's also created the illusion that you're keeping pace and your standard of living is being maintained not by increased wages but by the availability of credit. So is that the trap that was laid back then? And it's obviously been very, very profitable for the banks. Yes. Um, I mean, Reagan is absolutely a, a pivotal figure in the history of indebtedness and the history of, of material insecurity in this country, though the story doesn't originate with him. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, during Reagan's presidency, the number of millionaires skyrocketed, as did the number of, of unhoused people. Uh, and those are trends that have, have continued. Uh, it was also the period when the Supreme Court struck down usury laws. So, you know, um, further uh, deregulating the financial sector. Um, and of course, you know, Reagan famously set the stage for the evisceration of, of various welfare supports that then the neoliberal Democrats continued. You know, he attacked welfare queens and uh, also uh, welfare bums who were st- students attending colleges and universities without having to pay high tuition or take on enormous amounts of debt. 
but he's just one node in the story. Um, you know, debt has has been used as a tool of um, amassing profit, a tool of social control, and a tool of racial domination going back to the colonial days. Um, you know, and I'm sitting here actually talking to you from Canada, my motherland, uh, and uh, it was just revealed that Canadian households have the highest ratios of indebtedness of any G7 country. So the the model that you know Reagan, in in collaboration with Margaret Thatcher, who was uh, prime minister in, during roughly the same period, um, perfected a kind of neoliberal neoliberal government of austerity, of you know attacking the welfare state, attacking labor unions, and emboldening uh, corporate interests. You know has had global consequences, um, and so you know we're seeing it um, here uh, in Canada as well, not just the U.S. Well, the global consequences are that since 2020, the richest 1% have captured nearly two-thirds of all new wealth globally, almost twice as much money as the rest of the world's population. At the beginning of last year, it was estimated that 10 billionaire men possess six times as much wealth as the poorest 3 billion people on Earth. In the United States, the richest 10% of households own more than 70% of the country's assets. So... Is this a new form of feudalism uh, in the sense that you've got this vast peasantry around the world, roiling peasantry, and then you've got above that, you've got a thin sliver of the wealth protection industry of, of accountants and lawyers, and then on top of that, you've got a handful of billionaires. Is that a, a fair picture of the, the world we live in? <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a fair picture of of American society in in 2023. Um, you know what I find very terrifying is that this is a, a bad situation that can get worse. We have a kind of arms race among the billionaire class to become the first trillionaire. Um, you know, and this is really what I'm talking about in in my latest book, The Age of Insecurity, is that we are when there's no floor and there's no ceiling um, on poverty or wealth. You know, then you you never have enough. Um, you know, we have. A, a, an economic system, capitalism that is is fueled by greed, um, and so the incentives propel even people who have more money than they could spend in many many lifetimes to keep trying to amass amass more. Um, and you know, feudalism is certainly uh, one way of, of describing it. Though you know, maybe we need a, a new a new vocabulary. Um, but you know, this is part of why uh, organizing to transform the economic and political system that en enables this grotesque concentration of wealth is so critical because as bad as things are, um, they can continue to decline unless we intervene. And of course, on top of that, you have at home the threat of authoritarianism in the form of uh, a fascist takeover of the country by the Orange Duce, Donald Trump, who controls the Republican Party and of course <laughs> was absent at the uh, ridiculous food fight they had the other night um, because he's so far ahead he doesn't need to. So the, the, not only was it ridiculous, uh, I had to watch it, Astrid, because it's part of my job, but uh, unfortunately it was also irrelevant. So you've got authoritarianism at home and an ecological emergency at a global level. So, And then, of course, on top of that, you've got the, the broader landscape of feudalism that we've just talked about. So let's talk a little about the book in the sense that, just to abbreviate, quoting from the book, 
today, many of the ways we try to make ourselves and our societies more secure, money, mm -hmm. property, possessions, police, the military, have paradoxical effects, undermining the very security we seek and accelerating harm done to the economy, the climate and people's lives, including our own. So that's the trap, right? That is the age of insecurity as things fall apart. So let's talk about things falling apart and then later, obviously, uh, on a more hopeful night, note <laughs> about coming together. Indeed. I mean, this this book uh, is my presentation of, a, you know, a, a, a lens through which I think we can understand many of our current predicaments. Um, you know, you began uh, to lay out just what a crisis of inequality we're living in, the fact that a handful of billionaire men control more wealth than billions of people on this fragile and collapsing planet. Um, and I think it's absolutely important to pay attention to inequality. Um, but my emphasis on insecurity stems from the fact that insecurity is actually how inequality is lived day after day. It's the spike of shame when a, a debt collector calls. It's the apprehension about uh, ecological catastrophe. It's our foreboding about retirement and the fact that we will never be able to retire. We won't be able to rest. It's it's the anxiety you hear in people's voices when they talk about the fact that they can't, they can't pay rent. They'll never have the money to, uh, to buy a house. Uh, and, and I think this is a, um, you know, I'm an organizer and a writer, and I think it's really important to recognize that economic issues are always also emotional ones um, and, and that we need to speak to people in that way because authoritarians speak to people's emotions. They speak to and poke and intensify people's fears and then misdirect them. They take advantage of the fact that there's systemic insecurity and say, look, look how fragile you are. So fear immigrants, fear trans people, fear professors, um, you know, fear protesters for racial justice, um, instead of looking at the economic elites who are making your lives so miserable and so tough. And then they say, you know, and then you know, our system says, yes, you know, the way the path to security um, is ultimately to buy into these systems that destabilize, that paradoxically destabilize the economy. So if, if you want to have a chance at retirement, invest in your 401k, even if the stocks in that 401k are probably, you know, only accelerating carbon, carbon emissions or their companies that are pursuing very unjust labor practices. And so I, you know, this this book is an attempt to to say, look, security, material security is something we all need, providing it will have many beneficial effects. It will alleviate a lot of stress and suffering and I think mitigate the appeal of authoritarian strongmen. Because when people are more material, materially secure, there is evidence that they are less susceptible to this kind of faux right right wing uh, reactionary populism, um, and we'll, we'll all be better off in the end. <laughs> and truthfully, I think even the billionaires will be better off if they are no longer billionaires. Their wealth is redistributed, and they can, you know, start living a bit, bit more normally. Um, I think it would actually uh, be good for them too. Well, of course, two of the richest men on the planet are from Silicon Valley: mm -hmm. Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. And Zuckerberg's solution. And I'm sure Musk also shares in this techno-utopian nonsense. Mm. And that is the idea that Zuckerberg wants everybody to have have his helmet on living in a yeah. artificial, virtual AI world and living off 
you know, essentially everybody gets a token because there's no work because robots do all the, all the work. And that seems to be the vision that they're offering up. I mean, it's obviously the dystopian, but opposite of your book. But is this, you know, a future we want? Oh, I mean, it's absolutely not a future we want. And, you know, it's it's true. Zuckerberg is offering us a, you know, a, a mediated uh, future where we're all basically inside the metaverse. And therefore, you know, every activity we do is part of his profit extraction machine. And then Elon Musk was recently doing one of these ridiculous, you know, tours of the border to basically inflame this idea that there's a crisis of immigration, <laughs> no, no matter that he's actually an immigrant. Um, and he's the one causing, he's the one helping to, to cause uh, his class and, and, and the politics that, you know, he and others like him are pursuing is, is what's causing the actual crisis um, that so many people are suffering from. I mean, so, so absolutely, these people are you know, they're they're absurd, but they're incredibly destructive and they are invested in what I call manufactured insecurity. They are they their business model. Um, I mean, look at Facebook, right? The algorithm feeds you content that makes you more fearful, that makes you feel like you're lacking, that you need to buy things because obviously it's an advertising driven platform. Um, you know, Twitter does does much of the same. Musk himself is always peddling fear. So these guys are, you know. They're they're very much invested in in keep keeping uh, and deepening the insecurity producing status quo because it's pro- profitable for them, and they are absolutely not the people who should be writing the blueprint prints for our future. Uh, and I'm hoping that we're at a tipping point where people begin to take them less seriously. I mean, it's a little alarming that the biography of Elon Musk is the number one book at this moment, um, but hopefully people are reading it and becoming deeply disillusioned. <laughs> so I find it extraordinary though that young people in this country are indentured before they even get a job, that we've created a system, or at least Wall Street's created a system, where instead of investing in students as centers of investment for the future of the student and the country, they've become centers of profit. And economists point out that it's insane that if you indenture kids before they get a job and saddle them with a lifetime of debt, and, and of course there's this other racket, these for-profit universities mm-hmm. that saddle these kids with a lifetime of debt and give them worthless diplomas, and that's on the taxpayer's dime, by the way. So the debt's come due now, right, thanks to the Supreme Court. I think in a yeah. few days' time, isn't it, that yes. students are going to be back paying off this debt that's... Uh, Going to weigh yes. them down forever? Yes, indeed. Um, you know, the Debt Collective, which is the union for debtors I helped found, has been leading the fight for student debt cancellation for over a decade. And, um, you know, always felt that President Biden's proposed plan for canceling up to $20,000 per borrower under a certain income threshold was inadequate. But, you know, but it wasn't nothing. It was going to be the largest uh, progressive transfer of wealth in the last century, um, $450 billion if it had happened, which is why the right wing pulled out all the stops. You know, the uh, billionaire-backed think tanks um, and uh, billionaire-supported uh, public officials launched lawsuits, teed them up with Trump-appointed judges, you know, because our judiciary is so corrupt, and basically got fast-tracked to the Supreme Court, where, in the words of the um, uh, liberal minority, <laughs> 
the conservative supermajority violated the Constitution to strike cancellation down. So you're exactly right. Payments are being turned back down, back on. Uh, and those payments are going to be on, it seems, uh, despite a government shutdown. I mean, they're so determined to try to get uh, get these payments from students, which is, you know, we now know is very cruel because the government has not been collecting student loan payments since the beginning of the pandemic when President Trump issued a student loan payment pause. So we know the government doesn't need to be collecting money for people to pay back their student loans because as you're saying, education should be an investment. Um, uh, this is not an economic necessity. So what is it? It's a political project designed to control rising generations. And this takes us back to Ronald Reagan, who you began with. It was Ronald Reagan who actually set the machinery of student debt in motion when, as governor of California, before he became president, he began waging war on students, particularly on students um, at the University of California in Berkeley, but he essentially implemented policies across the state to uh, charge tuition for the first time because tuition was, was free. There were just nominal fees. And he did it explicitly to tamp down political unrest. He said, those who are paying tuition will think twice before they carry a picket sign. Um, and he really understood that that tuition and debt would be a form of social control and would help uh, create a more obedient um, student body and obedient workforce. And we've been living in Reagan's world ever since. And that's, you know, and the Debt Collective is, is dedicated to challenging that paradigm and recognizing and recognizing, as you say, that education is an essential democratic right. It should not be a commodity. It's something that we should all be entitled to. So let's talk a little bit in the last couple of minutes here about not so much about how things are falling apart, which we've covered, but how how we can come together. And, and mm. just again to quote from you, recognizing our shared existential insecurity and understanding how it is currently used against us can be the first step towards forging solidarity. Solidarity, in the end, is one of the most important forms of security we can possess, the security of confronting our shared predicament as humans on this planet in crisis together. I should have so, you read my audio book. <laughs> um, you know, I, I distinguish in the book between what two kinds of insecurity. One, that which the section you just read refers to, which I call existential insecurity, we're all insecure by virtue of being vulnerable, fragile, mortal creatures. We're creatures who need care throughout our lives. We're always interdependent. You know, none of us are self-made, let alone self-reliant. You know, we can be wounded psychologically or physically. We are insecure. And this is actually a beautiful thing. We can recognize our commonalities. We can take care of each other. I distinguish that from what I called manufactured insecurity, which is the kind of material insecurity that's imposed on us because it benefits the ruling class. Um, the fact that you know workers are kept insecure at the job so that they will be uh, less inclined to ask for better wages or treatment or to strike. The way consumers are kept insecure so they will keep buying things and, and feeling as though they do not have enough. Um, uh, you know, always uh, on that treadmill of consumption. Um, and, you know, as an organizer, what I what I see is that insecurity can cut both ways. There's a way that insecurity um, can be harnessed by reactionary authoritarian right wing movements, as I said, you know, when there are unscrupulous politicians who are ready to um, exacerbate um, people's fears, you know, uh, you know, and, and of course, you know, networks, right wing media networks that are willing to do the same. So insecurity can be a, a real boon to the right wing. But 
you know, insecurity is also the basis of so many wonderful progressive causes. I mean, we see this at the Debt Collective, where financially insecure and vulnerable debtors come together, um, overcome the shame and stigma of being poor, and find solidarity in in their uh, circumstances. Um, so one of our slogans is, you are not alone, a space L-O-A-N. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is... You know, so when we when we show our underbellies and we admit that we're struggling, that's actually how you build the solidarity um, that then, of course, needs to be wielded strategically with organization, you know, in a, in a, in a <laughs> to, to create, you know, structural political change. But it really is about insecurity. It's about saying, hey, I'm I'm discriminated against or, you know, I'm being exploited. Um, I'm you know, I just cannot I can't do it. I can't pay my bills. I can't be like, you know, I cannot go another day or I'm terrified about what the uh, what's in store given the acceleration of climate change. You know, that's where you start. That's where organizing begins and that honesty and that vulnerability. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Astra Taylor. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Astra Taylor, who's a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She's the director of What is Democracy and the author of Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and the American Book Award winner, The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. And she's the co-founder of The Debt Collective. And her latest book just out is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.